DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. Today, we present one of our Fireside Casts, and I'm very excited to have here with me Philomena Schwab, co-founder of Stray Font Studios, board member of the Swiss Game Developers Association and the Swiss Game Hub, passionate game designer, and the list could go on forever. But hi, Philo, thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> It's an absolute pleasure. So like I said, I could have gone on and on with the list of things you do. Um, <laughs> so maybe you give us a little bit of background uh, of yourself, like what you focus on now and, and how do you came to the games industry and all the different things you've been doing in the, the past couple of years. <laughs> well, um, so as you said, I'm the co-founder of Strayfon and currently we're focused on the development of our third game. Also for the first time porting one of our games to console and working on a mobile game for the first time, which is like completely different game design experience uh, than on PC. Other than that, we just recently opened the Swiss Game Hub, which is the first co-working space incubator for game developers in Switzerland. And yeah, there's just so much going on right now. <laughs> cool. So with Strayfawn, are you part of that Swiss Game Hub? Yeah, basically our studio and two other Swiss game studios decided that we will move into the same building. And then we just thought, hey, why not just rent some extra space and see if we can fill it up with more cool game developers. And while we're at it, let's see if somebody wants to join in a mentorship program. Mm -hmm. and, and how many developers did you already get get on board? Is that still ongoing or are you, are you already full at capacity and people well, moved in? We started it in November and then uh, okay. Corona hits. So all right, all right. <laughs> it was a bit of bad timing. Um, but I think around 20-ish okay, cool. additional. So in total, we're probably like 30 game developers in the building now, which is nice. And is, uh, in, in Switzerland, is uh, Zurich, where you have the Game Hub, is that kind of the hub in Switzerland in general regarding game development or are there other hotspots in, in Switzerland? Zurich is the hotspot. There's also the French part of Switzerland with uh, Geneva and Lausanne, which is catching up slowly. But uh, like, yeah, Zurich is still the main one. But also, like, if you compare it uh, to Germany or to other countries, we don't really have any big studios. Mm -hmm. So, like, the average size of a Swiss game studio is, like, two to five people. And the biggest one has probably, like, 25 employees. So, we don't even have a single AAA studio in Switzerland. Are those uh, studios mostly independent studios? Or are there also locations from, like, global companies that uh, have, like, a place in, in Switzerland? Not a single one. <laughs> okay. No, it's all mostly independent companies. The biggest one are the guys from Farming Simulator mm -hmm. and from Transport and Train Fever, if you've heard of them. Mm -hmm. I, I did, yeah. So, um, is that, I mean, since you're also active in the uh, Game Developers Association in Switzerland, is that an initiative that you're trying to pursue to attract more international companies as well to have a location in Switzerland and discover, like, uh, you know, the, the industry there? I mean, would be great, but Switzerland is kind of expensive. <laughs> yeah. So the government would kind of have to put up some very, very good incentives for companies to move here. And the government is not very game-loving um, just yet. So we're trying to convince them that games are actually a cool thing in the medium. I think um, we are a bit behind compared to Europe with convincing our politicians that they should really put more focus and also more money into supporting games. Is it mainly because those are like, I mean, in Germany, to, to be pretty honest, for about 10 years, it was mostly 
relatively old people that had no idea what games were about uh that uh you know heard about um violence and all these kind of things in games is that the same yeah. background why it's still difficult in switzerland i think so that and also like the newer discussion that um games make you addicted okay so so i think like i think it, it felt for a while like it got a bit better and now mm, i'm not so sure but we're doing our best to convince people that Basically, making a game is just like an empty canvas, and what you paint on the canvas is up to the game designer, and that not just every game is a super violent action movie equivalent. Yeah, what I've seen here in Germany is actually very interesting. Is uh, since I'm, like, you know, I'm a board member here in, in Germany, so in a similar uh, capacity than you are in Switzerland. And um, what we've seen is that a lot, a lot of politicians in recent years, um, you know, came or moved into the parliament, became member of the parliament, and they were they're younger. They were the ones growing up with video games. You know, to to them, they've played, you know, Mario, or they've played. Uh, some, most of them played GTA or something like that. So they they know the impact the positive impact video games can have and mm -hmm. uh, and that's why when you now have discussions with these guys it seems like they're on your side it's more like convincing <laughs> the other people that are still a little skeptical of you know to um, to move forward um, so I, I can only hope that in Switzerland uh, that same movement is going to happen yeah probably I feel it a bit as well that it's getting slowly easier to talk to the people in the parliament and so on but it's slow progress yeah, it's, it's a long process definitely <laughs> long journey ahead mm. I, i guess so um and the just talking a little bit about the swiss uh, industry association um you're one of the board members how, how are you guys organized is, is that do you have like uh, somebody doing this full-time or are you all like uh, volunteers to uh, make this happen no it's all on a volunteer basis mm -hmm. board is probably around seven or so people mm -hmm. There's the president and the vice president that run most of the operations. And then the rest of the board mainly picks what kind of aspects they want to help with. For example, me, I organize some of the exhibition space mm -hmm. and stuff. And I also did like a, a survey, what kind of, or like even like a little study with a, with a, with a university to actually figure out some dates about the Swiss games industry. So how much has it grown? Where are we located and so on? Because there has been no data collected just yet. Yeah, Switzerland is usually not one of the focal points of those bigger companies that do research and, and, and no. analysis. Sort of, <laughs> it is not. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's why you have to you know, come up uh, on your own with that. Mm. And uh, like the, the focal points of the association in general right now, is it pretty much to be heard more by the, by the, the public and the government? Or do you have like certain areas that you're trying to accomplish right now? Yeah, as you said, being heard by the government, but also like supporting young developers to find their way into the field and offering existing developers the opportunity to show their games and to connect more with each other to help people find teams we also run like a calendar for events and a job board and so on like all kinds of different areas did you receive any support for the swiss game hub that you're building or was that completely privately organized that was privately organized so far we have like two people who are like small sponsors for one seat. But we are also, once we have built it up a bit more, we will start looking for funding so we can maybe hire somebody to do all the organizing work. 
Yeah, I think it would be um, probably be a good entry point for you to, or maybe not entry point, but, but beyond that, like talking to the government and telling them, hey, listen, this is what we built here. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, it's it's a good showcase of the yes. power of this and, and potentially also, because ultimately, you know, they're mostly interested in creating new jobs. And, uh, you know, if, if you uh, provide the space and people then can found their own studio and, and create the teams that might at some point convince them that it's actually absolutely we want to do like guided tours and let them all play the games and so on oh, that's, that that sounds really good yeah talk talking about games um i mean obviously that's that's what we're all in this industry i guess <laughs> so uh, you've uh, been co-founding stray fawn studio um and uh you now mentioned that you're working on your first uh, own game uh that you do um so tell us a bit about you know how did the studio come together uh i think you have a you have a partner that you, you founded the studio with mm-hmm. um so how did that all happen and mm-hmm. uh, what have you done the past couple of years now leading to your first own, own project mm-hmm. that you do yeah maybe why i say it like our first own game the other two games were also our own games but this is the first project that we like start with the studio from the idea up to the final product. And before we founded the studio, like the two first games that we made, we already had the ideas for those games before we founded the studio, which basically worked like this. Um, I went to a game event in Switzerland and there I pitched my game, which is called Niche Genetic Survival Game, which was my final thesis from university. So my bachelor thesis and my future business partner was also there and he pitched his game Nimbaltus the Space Room Constructor, which at that point he was working on as a hobby project. And we just liked each other's games so much that we thought, hey, actually maybe we can support each other in finishing both of these games. And so we decided to found the studio together and first finish Niche and then finish Micha's game Nimbaltus. Well, that's cool. Uh, I guess if you if you you know found two matching games uh, and then create something around that, it sounds like the the perfect uh, you know ecosystem for both of you, right? <laughs> yeah, we were a bit like, who when we finish those two games will we find another project that we both agree that we want to do? But it was actually very easy. <laughs> so it seems you did, right? <laughs> We did, luckily, yeah. Do you have, like, different focal points? I mean, uh, as far as I'm aware, you come from, like, the art side of things mostly and, and game design, obviously. So, and, and your your partner, w- w- are there different uh, areas or are you both, like, designers for, for the most part? Yeah, Misha is mostly a programmer. Also, mm-hmm. like, with a programming background, he worked um, at a programming company, studied programming. And I am, I come from the graphic side, but during university, I mostly did, so I studied game design. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did a lot of game design and I learned some programming so that I can at least do like prototypes, the software architecture, I leave to him because he's just a hundred million times better. And also like somehow I ended up a lot in producing and especially in marketing for some reason, because that seems to be the role that not a lot of indie developers like to take on. And it seems I actually enjoy it. So Our studio is happy that I do it. And so I slowly replaced myself in the studio in all fields except for marketing and some of the game design. So I haven't really done art in the last three years. Well, I mean, fair <laughs> enough. If you if you found something you enjoy and you you kind of lead the, the studio and bring together the team, then I, I think that makes the most sense to, you know, to focus on, on those areas. Then, so uh, marketing is interesting. You say that because a lot of indie studios, like you uh, mentioned, you know, it's always like a little bit the devil. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we need somebody on on the outside. Um, is there anything in particular you enjoy about it? Well, 
when I finished my bachelor, I had this prototype and I thought like, oof, am I ever gonna sell any copies of these? And so I decided to go back to university and write my master thesis about community building for indie game developers. And then basically the final product of the master thesis was to run a Kickstarter and to see if the community building process of the past year could also be like transferred into actually earning money. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that actually worked out very well. And I was very surprised that, yeah, how much building up that community in the past year also paid off in order to keep working on the project. And at that point I was hooked and wanted to learn more about how you can do this and different approaches. So I would say, yeah, community building is one of my main focus points, but I really also like, like cross promotion, working stuff. So like chatting with other developers, learning from them, seeing how we can promote each other's games and so on. And yeah, then just also like the regular stuff, currently learning about ads and it's like a whole, it's <laughs> whole own universe and it's kind of interesting. So yeah, that, that definitely is its own universe. You know, I, I briefly in the past worked in that space for a while. I figured for myself, that's not really where I want to be. You know, I want to play <laughs> yeah. games again. But uh, yeah, there, it's even got its own language. I sometimes have the feeling you know, that you yes, really need to learn absolutely. if you want to be in that space. So you, you, since you wrote your master thesis about community building and you, you feel like it seems like very passionate about it, what are the, the key pillars from your point of view in, in successfully building a community? Well, I think there's lots of different ways how you can do it. Usually we try to involve people quite early. So like to get them excited about the idea, um, to hear their opinion about the idea, because it also very much helps to figure out when people see like a specific image, what do they think will be in the game? And then we can discuss it with each other. Um, we also do like community votings, for example, when the game is a bit further in development, mm-hmm. so people can vote on their favorite features and then we see if we can implement any of them. We try to be very transparent with them and just tell them what we want to do with the game, where we are at. If we have like delays or something, we just tell them everything right away. We do a lot of playtesting sessions. We always do a crowdfunding campaign for our game to basically see if this works out. So maybe as a context, we're self-publishing. So you never really know, like when you work on a game for three years and like we now have the budget to, to work on the new game, probably until it's early access release. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of very scary if you just work on it for like two years and then you put it out in early access and nobody buys it. So to minimize our risk and to involve our community, we usually do a crowdfunding campaign after the first year or so of development to see if this is actually something people are interested in and if it fails, which luckily it hasn't done so far, we say that, yeah, then we will totally re-evaluate the idea or maybe we will even like move on to the next project. I don't know if we could do it or if it would break our heart too much to let go <laughs> of the baby project we just had for a year, but yeah, hopefully it never happens. <laughs> so when you do the crowdfunding campaigns, um, the community, uh, does it already exist at that point? Did you use it or did you did you kind of communicate to the community that you had from your previous games that you made and, and kind of use them to, to activate them again for the new title you work on? Or, or how did that work from a like a chronological point of view, if you will? Very different for our two games that we did so far. So for Niche, as I mentioned, I did like one year of community building 
And for Nimbatus, uh, we had already announced the Kickstarter campaign and we had delayed the niche release twice. So there was like one month of time between the niche full release and the Nimbatus early X, uh, and the Nimbatus Kickstarter, sorry, which was already announced. And so we hadn't really had much time to do community building for Nimbatus. So there was like one month to set up the whole campaign and to build up the whole community. And then we had to come up with a bit of a different approach that we mostly made a free demo and marketed the free demo. And then everybody who wanted it had to sign up for our newsletter. And then we advertised the Kickstarter to our newsletter that we basically built up during this process. So the first time we had an existing community and the second time we had to build it up on the fly. I can imagine building it up on the fly is definitely challenging. <laughs> definitely challenging, but it worked out uh, very similarly. It's very weird. Those two campaigns were totally different. The target group is totally different, but both ended up at like $75,000. And I have no idea nice. why they are so close to each other. But I mean, in the end, it's, it's, it's good for you that they worked out um, so yes, well. Sure. Um, and I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out the specifics of uh, Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general and why some things work and why others do not. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's always exciting to hear how developers, um, you know, have uh, had their experiences and, and their stories um, they're sharing. So I'm uh, always fascinated by that uh, since there are also so many campaigns that do not work on, uh, on, on Kickstarter if you don't fully focus on it. So uh, mm -hmm. speaking about crowdfunding really quick, because you, you touched the topic, I mean, do you see any like key success factors for having an act, uh, a successful crowdfunding campaign any things you identified that made the difference for you definitely the trailer mm -hmm. <laughs> um, definitely how much experience the development team has already with marketing sometimes the kickstarter is just the first thing you do ever and you are unaware of the stuff you can do talking to other developers so basically whenever there is a game campaign that is done by an indie team and it raises over a hundred thousand dollars they can be sure that I will send them a mail or two if they have time to jump on a 15 minutes yeah. call with me <laughs> to discuss. And then I try to, yeah, what do they have in common, basically? Recently, something that they have in common is that they often release like a Steam prologue and the Kickstarter at the same time. So like the first 15 minutes or so of your game as a separate release on Steam as a prologue, if it's a Steam game, of course. And then at the same time, the Kickstarter, so you can really like bring in the traffic from both sides. So maybe mm -hmm. this is something we'll consider to do as well at some point. Cool. The reason why I'm asking these things is because always in our audience here, we also uh, have a lot of indie developers listening into that. I mean, we try to cater to different audience with DevCom in general. Um, um, <laughs> but I, we do believe that within these um, podcasts that we're podcast sessions that we have, um, that there are a lot of people similar to um, what you're doing right now that are curious about you know those elements. Uh, so if we have an expert like yourself in terms of indie games and, and development and community building, that's obviously very interesting. By the way, if you're interested in exactly how our Kickstarter campaigns went, we have uh, written like two very detailed articles about them. Mm -hmm. They are on strayfonstudio.com slash insights. Perfect. So, uh, so we got to make sure that uh, yeah, when we, um, you know, uh, actually post process this episode here and uh, mm -hmm. upload it, that uh, we somehow link this and uh, so that people can actually uh, go to the link directly. But it's it's really good, and I like it that um, studios that have 
uh, had certain experiences um, that they share it because that's how we all learn, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but since you were talking about community building for indie developers mainly, do you think a lot of the things that you were talking about are also applicable to larger developers, um, people that are not necessarily in the indie space? Yeah, I think so. Just like how you treat people. Like it's very hard if you run your first community to really come up with rules that work and which work for you. And I have never found like a set of rules that just work everywhere. Each community like has its own different little problems that you need to figure out and address how you solve them to clean, uh, like to keep, to keep it a friendly place. Because sometimes it just takes one person to turn the whole thing upside down and to really like make it move into a toxic direction. So you need to develop some kind of like intuition on who is the problem here? What is the problem here? How can you resolve this? What rule do you need? Is it just time to kick that person out? Is that right? Mm -hmm. So if you, um, speaking of, of toxic behavior in, in that space, and obviously opening up to the community is super valuable to game development uh, early on, but obviously it induces some risks if you um, get like extremely vocal feedback. Um, yes. So uh, is that, has it ever been a challenge for you that you uh, were wondering, I mean, can, can we really keep going that way? Should, should we listen to the community that much or, or does it pretty much bring our game into a direction where we don't want it to be from a design point of view? Yeah, sometimes. Luckily, like we managed to communicate our vision clear enough so that when we rejected something, people understood why. If you just say no, then they are not very happy about it. But for example, with the first game in Niche, it's basically a game about animal breeding and survival. And then people said, yeah, we want to like build structures in the game. Like I want to build traps so that predators cannot get into the, into my settlement of my animals and so on. And I'm like, these are animals. They cannot build like, okay, maybe they can build very simple things like a nest or something, or they could maybe dig a hole that something could fall into. But you always need to like try and see the world from the point, from the standpoint of these animals. So it wouldn't make sense for them to make like structures that is, yeah, that doesn't make sense. And then people understood. Are you, um, as, a, as an entire development team, are you all active in that dialogue with the community or is that mainly centered around you or others on the team? There are team members who like to do it and others who prefer to work on their own, basically. Mm -hmm. So we try to divide it a bit into who wants to do it. So I always encourage that everybody like shares screenshots of what they're doing in our forums and in our Discord and so on. But if somebody is like not super comfortable doing that, they can also just like put it in a Dropbox folder and then I will get it from there and post it and talk about it with the community. Yeah, it's, it's, I always find it interesting how development teams are interacting with the community because it, one of the concerns I often hear in that regard is that um, some studio leads say like I, I don't want all my developers to be involved with the community that much because A they should focus on their work and then and then B you know maybe they sent the wrong message uh, to the community and not everybody is like as talented in, in you yeah. know uh, <laughs> having a good conversation that does not lead to toxic behavior mm. so so that's why I find this interesting this particular yeah point. I'm wondering if I'm currently screwing it up with the third game are you? Because this is, I, I'm wondering because um, I just basically had a viral tweet on Twitter and then I was like, whoa, I didn't expect this. And then, oh God, I have to open a Discord and like 
give these people like a place where they can follow the game. It was just like from my personal account, the tweet. So I opened up Discord in a hurry. And then now we have like 500 people in there and they kind of based on just an image and a small pitch, they are now discussing what this game is like. And I'm like, oh my God, oh, wow. this will be a lot of expectation management since we didn't really communicate very clearly what this is going to be. And I'm sure a lot of these people will be disappointed in what the game actually is because like maybe it's more of a peaceful game about um, symbiosis mm -hmm. and there's maybe like a third or so in there which thinks yeah and then we can like gear up our animals and fight against <laughs> each other and i'm like no <laughs> probably not so i'm sure there will be some disappointed people and i have to make sure they get disappointed before they give us any money <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it you want them to be disappointed before they give money that's yes I mean, please it's a it's a fair approach but it's otherwise i feel like i have to cater to their needs yeah. which i probably absolutely cannot so yeah. yeah, it's one of the reasons I, I think uh, some of the Kickstarter campaigns ultimately led to slightly disappointed community because they were expecting so many things, and then mm -hmm. in the end, the game became something very different. So uh, I, I yeah, like your so approach in that sense. Our past two games like had already um, a demo up for all the Kickstarter backers to try, so that they could see what to expect. This will probably not be the case with the third one. So we have to make super sure to communicate very well what we like the mood and the setting that we want to go with in the game. But I already see that this has bigger potential for conflicts than with the previous two campaigns. So do you want to talk about it a little bit about the, <laughs> sure. the, the, the new game? What, what is it going to be? I mean, you, you told me it's uh, the Wandering Village. Um, yes. Yeah, so tell us something about it. So actually, the name is not yet quite set. This is just like the one that we currently use, but in the Discord. Um, they're discussing and suggesting, so we're not sure if this is what we will be using in the end. So we treat it as a working title, I guess. We treat it as a working title. And um, yeah, we haven't really announced it yet. So we're like posting bits and pieces and figuring out what it is. And basically it will be a city building game or a base building, city building simulation game where you have to build a settlement on the back of a huge creature that is walking around. So kind of really a... Cool. <laughs> thanks. So kind of a, hmm, it's hard to describe, kind of a city building game with a Tamagotchi touch, I guess. So you because, have to care for the creature, the animal that you built the city on. Well, you're basically dependent on it because yeah. um, the setting, I don't know if you maybe now uh, know Naushka of the Valley of the Wind. It's a Ghibli movie and the setting is very much inspired by it. So that basically the world or the ground of the world has become toxic. So that's the reason why the people basically have to live on the back of the animal. And the animal also actually used to be a hill, just like sleeping in the ground and getting all its nutrients from the ground, sleeping in there. And because the ground is now toxic, the animal also had to get up because it couldn't take, take in all the toxin anymore. And now they have to start walking and like look for areas that are less polluted and in that journey, they are completely dependent on each other, basically. How does the animal eat? <laughs> Detailed question, but if it's if the, <laughs> the ground is toxic, so do, do you is do you as a player uh, with a with a city or a town that you build on on top of the animal, do you have to take care that the animal gets its nutrients and, and these things? So still playing around with the game mechanics, but basically the animal can get a certain amount of nutrients from the ground. Um, it just cannot do it forever. So yeah, you're probably, depending on how far and how much it has to walk, which is also, it isn't used to walking, right? It is used to like 
staying in the ground all the time and maybe getting up for mating season every thousand years or something. Um, so yeah, you basically have to also give it some additional nutrients. Maybe you also sometimes just come into a certain area where the toxin have not spread so much. And there's also maybe some fruit up in the trees or something. So it has a mouth, mm -hmm. so it can actually also digest food from like plants that are higher up and not so much victim to the toxins yet. And the city building part of the, that you actually, I guess it's the focus focus of the in the game. Mm -hmm. um, does that have a particular goal? Is it to you know create the perfect symbiosis with the animal? Is it like to uh, then interact with potentially other try? I don't know. Is it a single player or a multiplayer game? Multiplayer. Yeah, uh, sorry, single player, <laughs> single player, single player. Yeah, I'm thinking about maybe if we can add some little multiplayer aspects that maybe like. There are other tribes simulated in the game depending on player behavior, but it's all like still very much in the future. So for now, just single player. And probably it's also still too early to say what exactly the end goal will be. So we're focusing on really just making an interesting game mechanic out of surviving as long as possible and walking as far as possible. Maybe there's like one goal that you just manage to basically prove that you mastered this style of living. So congrats, you survived for, I don't know, mm -hmm. five years or something. So your tribe will probably keep living. But then also we could think about having like a true ending where you maybe cleanse the world of the toxin. But this is again, all still future music. So for now, we're just trying to make a fun game and a challenging game where you actually try to build up a symbiotic village. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see what like going from the story what is a good end point of the story yeah that's pretty much what i was getting at if you can actually you know end the game somehow but it sounds more probably like at, at, the, at the moment it's more like a survival game that might have an ending at, at some so point so our games it's like actually very similar our all our games are basically survival games mm -hmm. that have an ending but you can keep playing them forever so for example in niche um you have like an optional goal where you can go back to your original island and meet your original family. And then you can consider this to be the end of the game if you want, mm -hmm. or you can just take your family and then keep exploring other islands. So it, it doesn't really have an end point. There's no credit roll in our <laughs> games. <laughs> <laughs> which which is fine i guess you can always put a button in the menu if you want to yeah. see who worked on it mm -hmm. so um and and the the creature uh i'm curious they are like uh, the same for every player or do you have like different creatures and and do they have an impact on on the gameplay somehow so for now it will be the same creature or at least a very similar creature mm -hmm. maybe like the shape on the back or maybe like where the different biomes on the back of the creature or spawn will maybe be procedural maybe we'll also experiment like can we have like different animal heads or something so that it's like feels a bit more like your pet creature mm -hmm. because it's unique every time um yeah i mean if we get a lot of money with the early access or with the crowdfunding we can definitely think long term if we want to have like different creatures But for now, like for the minimal viable product, we're definitely going with one since it will be a lot of work to do like mm -hmm. different ones and different perks and so on. And the target platform for early access is PC or are you PC for this? early access? Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And then hopefully also like consoles for the full launch. Yeah. 
I mean, that, that adds a whole layer of complexity, obviously. Uh, it does. It. Uh, we go in that direction. Yeah. Uh, we're just like, for the first time now, we're porting Niche, our first game, to consoles. And we basically had to do a lot of UI rework and like to make it work with the control, uh, with the controller, because it's a mouse uh, and keyboard game. Yeah. Was It was a lot of work. We didn't expect it would be so much work. So now this time we have to plan from the beginning how to actually yeah. do that well. Are you using Unity for that or yes? Other? Okay, Unity. yeah, that's what I think. Mean, most most developers, I uh, feeling especially smaller teams, are uh, relying on Unity because I think it makes it easier to port it than to to different platforms. Mm -hmm. So, um, talking about your team a little bit. Um, so, how many people are actually working on that game right now, and and uh, how is that um, split between like uh, programmers and, and artists, and or are you pretty much all like uh, having multiple roles in in a small studio? <laughs> We all pretty much have multiple roles, I guess. So in total, we are currently 11 people. Um, but like a lot of us are part-time. So I would say it's maybe like it would be the equivalent of six or seven full-time people or so. Um, some people in the team are still like updating Nimbatus right now. So our second game just came out a month ago. And we still have some stuff to deliver from the Kickstarter stretch goals. We always promise too much in the, in the Kickstarter stretch goals. Like <laughs> for Niche, it was like almost a year after the release until we were finally done adding everything to the game that we promised in the stretch goals. During a Kickstarter, you're just like, yeah, sure, let's do that and that. Yeah, and that sounds cool as well. Oh no, we hit another stretch goal. We need to come up with another one. Uh, like in the next half hour and then you just decide on something and then that haunts you for the next two years. So this time we're trying to be more reasonable with stretch goals, but I also can already see that we will go overboard again because while you are just in that excitement of the Kickstarter, yeah. just want to get another 10K and then maybe we could do this. And yes, so I wonder how many Kickstarter campaigns it will take us to actually learn not to overpromise in the stretch goals it's, maybe it's not even possible i mean i've, I've heard it from so many developers that were actually running kickstarter campaigns uh, they said like oh it felt so exciting it's the same thing like you just said you know we mm -hmm. we had to throw in something and at some point it's like oh my god how did we actually do this uh, why did we promise this it's yeah. so complicated because One at thing, that point it's it's just yeah. an, it's just a thought and it's a feature that you think would be cool but then you know you're, you're not really grounded i guess like talk to to the people that actually have to program it or have to design it somehow and then figure out, oh my god this is actually no no they are board as well the programmers and designers are like yeah sure we do it okay. and they're like Ooh. yeah they haven't done their estimates i guess <laughs> they, they did their optimistic estimates yeah, okay. because they're in an optimistic mood right yeah. now so yeah and um other than that we were also making a mobile game for niche now so like a bit of a more casual uh niche variation mm -hmm. i'd say so some of the team is busy with that And then we're also like doing the console. We have outsourced the console parts, but it's still a lot of work like to verify the quality and to mm -hmm. give feedback and so on. And yeah, lots of other small things as well. So I think currently like four and a half or so people are working on the new game, but also just part-time. So maybe like two or three days a week. So progress is steady but also like as we get closer to the kickstart i'm sure we will be like okay now everybody has to go into like full time yeah and uh, we really have to finish this and this 
But I'm really curious to see how it will like impact our work towards the Kickstarter when we probably will at least not have a public demo, which, which is what I'm currently considering. Because just like the vision and the visuals for the game are very strong compared to our other two games. So really, I can just post an image and people already want to start talking about it. And it was harder for our other two games. There we really like needed to show some gameplay that they could really see like, wow, this is really cool. And so we think it's maybe better to just keep it at a very good video and a very good pitch instead of having like a half-baked demo that could maybe potentially turn off people in this case. So yeah, but I'm really curious to see how that will go. So, so when you um, then finally have that Kickstarter campaign and of course, depending on its success, um, do you have a plan to ramp up the team? Do you want to grow a little bit to make that game happen? Or would you say like now nah, we'd rather want to take our time and stay um, with about the size that you have right now? Mm, we could maybe use another programmer slash game designer. But the Kickstarter has to be quite successful so that we would be willing to mm -hmm. take the risk to bring somebody on board with it. Are you, mainly, uh, are you mainly recruiting from, from Switzerland? Or are you trying to get people from like outside of Switzerland on board? What's your, what's your philosophy there if you get new people on board? So we actually try to only hire people from Switzerland, mm -hmm. for now at least. Because, um, as you heard, our industry is struggling a bit. Yeah. Though, if you compare it to 2008, I talked about the study before, right? Compared to 2008, in 2018, we had like 500% more game developers. So that's like a good increase. But it's still hard. Like, for example, there's like 15 to 20 people coming out of university that studied game design, like I did. Mm -hmm. And they are usually very good people. And not everybody finds a job in game design or in programming or just in the games industry. So that's really a shame. And so we try to do our best to hire one of the people that come out of university when we can or when, yeah, or also just look around in general if we can hire somebody. Of course, it would be so much cheaper to outsource. Yeah. It would be so much cheaper. So maybe if we see that we're like endangering our survival as a studio, then probably we would start. Or if we have already hired all the people in Switzerland, then we can also start <laughs> but, hiring. <laughs> but I like the approach. I mean, if, if nobody did that, if nobody hired uh, people locally uh, and gave them a chance, then uh, how else would the industry grow? Uh, you know, So I right. guess it's very important for the Swiss industry that there are people like yourself and in the studio that That, that do that you know and not um, just uh, outsource it i mean i see it all the time also here in germany i mean i'm more active here in the region of bavaria and uh, i can see there's uh, quite a few indie developers here that are also trying to hire locally and give people that come from university a chance to you know have their first steps in the industry um, as opposed to some others that are you know hiring where it's cheaper and mm -hmm. uh, and i don't think that helps the industry that much yeah the problem here is also like you don't have any big studios that like mm. offer entry roles. So it's kind of, yeah, we, the indie developers, have to build up our own industry. What would you consider entry roles? Now you mentioned that. So it's, uh, I, I don't know, curious. like, it's hard to, like, maybe, like, internships or just, like, junior roles mm -hmm. because in an indie studio, it's hard to hire somebody, like, for a junior role. Usually somebody comes fresh of university, comes into our studio, gets, like, 
two weeks to get used to how things work and bam, maybe they're already in a leadership role. <laughs> and then they just have to grow into it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that happens in, in a lot of studios as well. I mean, my, my, I, was, I joined the industry in 2008 and I was actually being desperate for, um, you know, getting into the industry after I mm -hmm. uh, had my degree in, in business administration. And and uh, so I, I thought like, hey, you know, I can be a producer. Everybody's going to want me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was really wrong about that. So uh, <laughs> at some point, I kind of managed my expectations a little bit and, and, and I applied as a community manager because I thought, hey, I want to I get in there. And I really believed in, in the importance of community. And mm -hmm. then uh, similar to what you were saying, you know, I was interviewed mm -hmm. as a community manager. And at the end of the interview, they asked me if I wanted to be the product manager manager on the project <laughs> so it was uh that was my way into the industry so it was very interesting and uh i can i can definitely say that uh indie developers play a very very important role uh in getting people into the industry but of course they can't provide the roles that sometimes bigger ones can you know? yes absolutely it's hard to really specify in something we try though like We check everybody's wants and needs in the team. For example, we had one team member who said he absolutely wants to do 2D animation, which is actually the reason why the next game with the big animal has 2D animation. <laughs> so mm -hmm. otherwise maybe we, we would have decided differently. So we kind of see how far we can get in making exactly the games that we want to make with the roles that we want to have and if that is sustainable in any way. So within the studio, um, when you say the, the games that we want to make, how do you, and let's take the community aside for a moment, how do you decide on what you want to do within the studio? I mean, how do you lead the studio? Is it like a democracy? Are you, are you kind of pretty much uh, listen to everybody and then you, you vote and this is how we go? Or how do you organize yourselves? Hmm. I think this was just like me and my business partner chatting about what we could do and if we find an idea that we would buy, both find interesting mm -hmm. and then um, just casually talking about it with the team and everybody was kind of very on board with it. So like, okay, so guess this is our new project now. So it didn't really have, it just came from somewhere. We like saw a picture and saw, Hey, these like these huge creatures are very cool. Hey, have you like, seen movies where they have like cities on these creatures and oh but there's like n no game that actually has this as a topic you know there's games that has it that have it as a setting for example like um for example xenoblade is something that i hear very often though i didn't know xenoblade before i actually like bef like until two months ago i mean I've, i've heard of it but then everybody like every third people every third person in the discord is like hey it's like xenoblade and I'm like what so I'm currently playing it and okay, yeah, it like touches on the topic a bit, but there's no game that uses it really as a game mechanic, no. like the whole interaction with the animal kind of thing. So we thought, yeah, people like big animals and we like big animals and we could make a game. I, I love big animals, it. you know, I'm a huge dinosaur fan. So There you go. <laughs> so, the, so the bigger, the better in that case. You know? And for niche mobile, for the niche mobile version, it was actually one of our team members who said, hey, you know, we should really, really make a niche mobile game. And then, like, we started thinking about it. Yeah, actually, actually, you're right. So it can come from anybody. And then we just 
yeah, then we sit down, talk it through, think about it a bit, and sometimes it sticks and then we do it. How much did you have to modify the niche mobile game um, to make it work for mobile? I mean, obviously there's the user experience, uh, but gameplay-wise, I mean, um, you, I think you said earlier that you had to kind of casualize it a little bit. I don't know if that word exists, but... I mean, <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, that was also our intent because like the... <laughs> I don't know. So when we decided to make this game... Having cute animals and survival are kind of two things that for some people they match together very well. But if you have your animals and they get eaten all the time and you love them, that's kind of, it's, it hurts a lot. <laughs> so there is like one part of our community that really liked like breeding animals and that really didn't like like having to do the survival mechanics. So we thought, hmm, can we make the mobile game? just as complex with the breeding or maybe even more complex with the breeding, like what kind of combinations can come out, but have the gameplay like to be a lot more non-violent that you basically just have um, biomes that you need to adapt to with the breeding. Like you need to meet certain requirements. Your animal has to be this strong and needs to see this far and smell this good and so on. Um, so it can go into the biome forage there, find new genes. So, It's more a bit of a collecting game, I guess. But I think the core audience who really likes the breeding aspect of the game will really enjoy it. So it's, yeah, I think it's just maybe the, maybe the non-violent, more maybe a bit puzzly version of the mm. game. Are you trying to mainly reach new audiences on mobile with that? Or are you trying to add some value to the people that already played the game before on another platform? Both, I think. Mm-hmm. Enter. And we have been like discussing about the monetizing model since a year and it's, uh. <laughs> and so basically we don't want to do free to play yeah. because we're not really fans from a moral standpoint of free to play mechanics. And so we thought, yeah, we'll go with a freemium model to basically just have like the first biome is free and then the next cost like two francs each and there's a total of five or so and then you have it mm -hmm. like the maximum you can spend in the game is like 10 bucks but now we're like oh god i'm not sure if we will sell like any anything with this approach so now we're probably going with premium after all so maybe like we're doing premium first this is something that i have seen from other games we do premium first um maybe for half a year or a year or something and then our community who want to like get the game and support us, they can get it premium. And then at some point we will maybe switch to freemium if we feel that, okay, like we have exhausted most sales we can get uh, with the game and we still want to keep expanding it. So what do we do? We do it. We see if we switch to free and do it freemium, if that gets us another push. And this is also, so we're kind of trying to build niche up into a bit of an IP so we're making plushies now, which is uh, oh, cool. very cute. And there will be a crowdfunding campaign for that as well. And uh, we're looking into maybe doing or trying to do books because a lot of our community like reads Warrior Cats, which is like a teenage girl targeted book series about wild cats that live in the forest and have like tribes. And it's, it's one of the inspirations for Niche. Mm -hmm. So we thought that, yeah, maybe it would be cool. So we're now like trying out to work something out with an author if we can do something, but it's really not sure yet. And so bringing in new people, if the game would be free, would also probably be good, like just for the franchise 
as a whole, then maybe they would get the PC game and so on. But yeah. There was one thing you actually uh, touched on briefly. You said like um, you, you're not really big fans of uh, free-to-play. Um, and then you mentioned the freemium model. Where do you draw the line in that case? So what do you think is, is okay? And, and when is it becoming morally unacceptable to you and the team? Well, for us, it's basically when you can spend endless money in the game. So because then your goal becomes to get the player as addicted as possible so that they keep buying and buying more and more. So, you know, the whole mobile thing with, yeah, you have to find the whales, the 1% of players who spend a lot of time and a lot of money in your game. And yeah, those are basically the people who got addicted. <laughs> and you're trying to produce as many of them as possible. And this is like just not a game design approach that I'm very fond of taking. Mm -hmm. And then with the freemium model, it basically just means, I mean, of course, there's also like bad freemium models and good free-to-play models where they like manage it and so on to some extent. Um, with the freemium model, we want to take is basically just, we add new, it's like a DLC. Yeah. So yeah, there's a new biome. It has 10 new genes and you can get it for two francs. And when you, once you've got all of them, which we cannot produce in unlimited quantity, Like if you were just like skipping a timer or something, you know, in the yeah. free-to-play model, then uh, then you have everything. And the people who bought the game, like at the time it's premium, will just get everything for free that is added later, probably. Oh, I hope I'm not making any promises in this podcast that somebody <laughs> will dig up at some point. So maybe disclaimer, this is also just what we're currently thinking we're going to do. Please don't. No, I, I, I perfectly <laughs> see it that way. And, and thank you for, for openly talking about it and sharing it. And I think that's it, it is so powerful to talk about these things early on. But at the same time, obviously, you open yourselves up to the expectations that we talked about yeah, uh, yeah. previously, right? <laughs> so, uh, people will always come back to you and say, but wait, Philo, you said, you know, that mm -hmm. this is going to be freemium or, and premium. And And, mm -hmm. uh, so. This is all just in my head, everybody. It's not <laughs> putting on paper anywhere. Huh? Well, you said it now, so <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just dang. kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, it's, uh, <laughs> that's fine. It was just interesting because um, it's one of the, the few times I hear somebody um, distinguish between free to play and freemium. A lot of people use those terms interchangeably, um, mm -hmm. and that's why I was curious how you see mm -hmm. the world in, in that space. <laughs> And there are a lot of developers that I talk to that that have those concerns, and it's interesting. I mean, we also had a, a session with a free-to-play expert where we talked about free-to-play mm -hmm. and how to not make it pay-to-win, but uh, yes. but have it morally acceptable, I would say, and and kind of you know do away with a lot of those uh, misunderstandings regarding free-to-play. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. And maybe at some point we should uh, throw the two of you together in a podcast <laughs> and, and discuss this. You know. The problem is also just that the game allows everything. I've never made a game that like allows so many different monetization models. It would yeah. also work great with incentivized ads. So it's kind of like, okay, no, let's, let's try it as we would prefer it. Are incentivized then, ads okay? Or are they more... I don't know. Ah, I see. It's also like... I had to ask, you know. Ah, it's like at the edge because... So basically we have our community and our community consists very much of like younger girls, I'd say like maybe 12 or so. Mm -hmm. And then when we show them ads in our game for other cute free-to-play games, then maybe they just go there. And then maybe the damage is done over there and not in our game. And maybe that's less morally problematic. Mm. Maybe not. Maybe we could just also show ads of, I don't know, learning software. But is it worth it then? So we still need to investigate it more. 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the typical uh, conversations that um, you know I, I have with developers or developers have among each other about what are ads that you want to have in your game? Do you want to draw people to other games? And to what extent does it actually happen? Or do they stay in your game anyways? Which is, I guess, for the most part, what, what, what happens. You know, there, there might be people that try out other things, but then they, they still play your game if, if the game is great. Um, but obviously, it's more difficult with the younger target group that you have. So there's one other topic I wanted to, to touch on since you mentioned before that you're self-publishing um, and we talked a little bit about marketing and so on. What does it mean these days to self-publish uh, as an indie developer? And is it something you would recommend to all the indie developers out there? Or do you feel there's also you know a need for publishers? And if so, how would those publishers look like? I think there is a need for publisher especially since not all indie developers or not all teams have an interest in marketing, as I mentioned before. If this is something you're really not passionate about at all and you don't see yourself getting into it at all, then a publisher is a great way to fill out that role. Either that or you hire somebody who is very passionate about it. So I think that is totally legitimate as long as they do their part. It's also great if you need some initial investment to actually make the game. So there are so many games that would never have been made if there hadn't been a publisher who gave them some initial funding. So that's very cool. If you have somebody in your team and you think you can do a good job that is kind of close to what maybe a publisher can do, then you can absolutely try, especially because you are the person that knows your game best and maybe just also has some... You probably have some marketing ideas that the publisher will not have because they simply won't have the time to delve so deeply into your game. Maybe the publisher has some that you don't, but you will never know if you go one yeah. route or the other route. Um, yeah, we're still considering if we want to take a publisher on at some point. Maybe it would just have to be a really good deal. So maybe, uh, so basically, um, if the publisher takes like 50%, then I would need to know that they actually like give us 50% more profits so that I think it's <laughs> worth it, right? So yeah. I'm considering, is this person really going to do a marketing job that is maybe like five times better than if I do it on my own? And Or are they really giving us money that we need right now? But if we don't, then it really just comes down if they do a better job. Or could I just go ahead and hire a PR agency or like a different agency for all kinds of things. So there's one point where we already are working with a publisher, which is for China, mm -hmm. because there I just lack the language skills and the cultural knowledge to do a good job. And there I am sure that the publisher is doing a job that is five times better than me because mine absolutely sucks. So it's not hard <laughs> to be five times better than me in that. But then for the, like for the American and the European market, I'm not sure. So we can also do like ads and like have influencer connections and so on. And the problem is when you do it with a publisher, you never know what you actually did yourself. So after the game is out and you did marketing and the publisher did marketing, you don't know how much of the success is thanks to your own efforts. And then you probably feel like you have to do it again with mm. the publisher. And once you're in the publishing cycle, I'd say, It's very hard to get out if somebody takes like 50 or even 70% of the money you make with the game. Then you will most certainly or most likely need another publisher for the next project 
unless it has been super enorm, uh, super successful and 30% is enough to finance the next game. So yeah, that's, a, that's you described the typical kind of vicious cycle in that case. Yes. That you will, you know, that you always have to, uh, you know, keep growing then with a the publisher and do the next title and so on. Obviously, you know, a lot of developers um, really uh, actually, you know, choose that model. And um, mm -hmm. I, I should say at that point, or disclaim, I worked for a publisher. So <laughs> it's, uh, even though it's not, uh, I'm not here to represent them. I'm, I just say I, I know both sides of that. There, mm -hmm. There's definitely clear advantages of uh, working with a publisher. And there's also clear advantages of working uh, independently and I think it like you said it you always have to figure it out for yourself what what you want to do and what what matters to you in the end I think it's also about if you're planning to do multiple games with this team then it's absolutely worth it to like try it on your own and see if you can build up some connections you know with platform holders and with influencers and so on and that is something you can take with you to the next game and if you work with a publisher you will not take it with you mm. And so then you have to start from the beginning again. So you said you already chose a publisher for the Asian market. Um, how did you choose that publisher? We basically met at Gamescom and we could communicate with them very well. So it's not a given that, yeah. at least for me, when I meet with Chinese publishers that we have, that I feel like I can actually understand yeah. like what this person is saying. And they had a good track record. And I'm very satisfied. They're called uh, Whisper Games. Mm -hmm. And we actually work with them for all our games now in the foreseeable future, at least for Steam. Cool. I was very convinced by their work. That, that, that makes sense. And it's actually an interesting point. You mentioned that there's uh, oftentimes uh, mm -hmm. communication issues if you work with mm -hmm. uh, publishers in, in Asia. And I think... Uh, Uh, I, I totally understand why you said, you know, if, if that part works, then it gives you more confidence uh, in, in making this happen. Yeah. Absolutely. So and when you talk to other indie developers, um, are you pretty much suggesting uh, to them that they should also work on their own? Or are you sometimes telling them, hey, you guys need a publisher? <laughs> well, I think it usually becomes obvious from the team. If there's like somebody, I meet somebody and then we start talking about marketing and that person has a lot of questions and wants to learn. Then I'm like, okay, looks like you have somebody in your team who wants to, mm -hmm. you know, gather all the knowledge, talk to people, figure it out. And if they're just like, yeah, but hmm, then I'm like, yeah, maybe get a publisher makes more sense for you. Sometimes it really just makes more sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in the end, it comes down to the team. I've also met teams where it was like, no, you guys should stay independent and first, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. make your own experiences. And then we can talk about whether a publisher helps. I mean, for us, we're also maybe, I don't know. So our team isn't very good at delivering on schedule. <laughs> I would say it's maybe the, the biggest weak point of our team is that we basically never deliver on schedule so that's so uh, i mean that is, that is probably not the best ad for getting a publisher on board <laughs> right so i mean when i talk to publishers i just clearly tell this to them at the beginning like how flexible are you with time because you don't have to pay us more or something but mm. um we don't want to rush so if we feel like oh no we're all getting stressed out then you can either crunch it out or you can say we delay it by three months. And our usual approach is definitely to delay it by three months. Yeah. So far, we have been able to afford it. And it's a luxury that we hopefully want to continue to have. 
And then, yeah, working with a publisher and having a milestone that we need to hit every month for potentially stresses out a lot. Yeah, and it can be difficult, so, obviously, for the publisher to then, because they have their certain ways of doing things. And, uh, you know, if, if then a developer comes and says, hey, we need longer, we're going to deliver it and uh, it's going to be <laughs> great. And it doesn't cost you more, but it, we definitely need longer. That might already ruin some of the processes on the publisher side of things. Uh, if absolutely. They multiple games. So, so, yeah, it would need to be difficult. a flexible publisher. Or we would just need to make a very, very, very pessimistic estimate on when the game is actually done. So that we maybe even done two months or three months before the deadline actually yeah. is or something. And then, but then we would need to make sure that we have the financial stability yeah, absolutely. to have that gap and still be able to jump on the marketing train three months later or something. Speaking of the timeline, I haven't asked that question so far. Do you have any timeline in mind for uh, The Wandering Village or whatever it's called later on? Well, yeah, the idea is to have the Kickstarter at some point this year, mm -hmm. maybe October, November-ish, but we'll have to see. And then probably the early access in a year or so. Next year in... September is also when we start to slowly run out of funds. So this okay. is probably when the next early access release needs to happen. <laughs> well, I mean, next year there's also uh, Gamescom, hopefully again in a physical way uh, in mm. August. So that's that's then the, the I get the latest chance uh, for you guys to, uh, you know, really be active with the community then and hopefully help you. Yeah. I also hope that our Switch release will perform better than our pretty pessimistic estimate that yeah. we did now and will give us a longer runway and i also hope that the kickstarter will go better than the pessimistic estimate well, so this I'm, is like I'm, I'm based sure on the pessimistic estimate it's always But, good to be pessimistic first and then you know, right. uh, be surprised positively i would say <laughs> so there's um there's one more topic that i simply have to talk about uh, a little bit with you uh mm -hmm. and that's uh, about uh, women in the games industry um so obviously i mean you are one of the few ones that uh Uh, really, um, you know, stand out and and talk about uh, you know how to build a studio and so on. Maybe I shouldn't say one of the few ones. There are quite, quite some in the industry, but not mm -hmm. not everybody is is really active at, at conferences and and uh, is as vocal as you are about um, mm -hmm. the games industry and building it up. I mean, you've been uh, during my preparation. I saw you've been uh, named uh, one of the 30 under 30 by Forbes in 2017 for technology mm -hmm. in Europe. You got the Hero Award at Gamescom last year. Um, for For your activity in that field um so what does it take these days and and how, do you actively somehow support um girls getting into the industry um is that something uh that uh that is on the radar of the swiss association and is there anything you feel like the industry as a, as a whole can do to you know improve that situation make it more attractive for uh people from not only uh, about the gender topic but people from all walks of life to get into um the industry so maybe quickly about being so vocal. That's one of the points I actually think are very important if you want to build up your local games industry. You need to generate as many success stories yeah. as you can. So I think we're by far not the most successful Swiss game studio, but I'm sure that we have had like probably, I'm just assuming the most coverage mm -hmm. like about our success stories compared to somebody who's actually more successful, but is just not vocal about it. Yeah. And that actually sucks because we needed to be in the newspaper everywhere and we need to know politicians that we won, don't know what award and, mm -hmm. you know, and released a game that sold so many copies and so many copies. So this is very important, especially if you're like from a country 
that has a small games industry and needs to yeah up it, up its game basically um as for being female we do try to help girls finding their way into the industry we also help boys finding their way into the industry so maybe it's important to see that our studio doesn't make a difference so when you apply it's definitely not so it's a very hard topic to talk about because in one way i want to support like female developers but in the other way when i get an applica- when i get two applications on my table i don't want to take a person just because she's a woman yeah. but because she's really because i wouldn't want this for myself either i want the job because i'm the best candidate and i want them to give me a chance and it absolutely makes no difference what gender i have i also don't really like when i get invited to the panel or to a panel or whatever and then like oh look we have a woman on the panel and like <laughs> why are you you know next time you can do your panel on your own i i understand that you want to like use me to balance out your ratio but that's not my value here yeah. so it's kind of i hope of, you didn't get that impression from today's no, uh, I uh, didn't podcast get episode because really that's no, not that's not what i, I want not. to get across yeah. no absolutely i did not <laughs> But at the same time, I also understand that it's important to have a ratio. You know, it's like um, whatever I say in this topic, it usually offends the one side or the other side. So I'm just it's, very, it's, it's very, it's very tricky, and I totally understand <laughs> where you're coming from there. I mean, within the German industry, I've uh, over the the past years since I became a board member, I've also looked into that topic of diversity, not only from a gender point of view, but mm-hmm. in general uh, diversity yeah. in the industry, and it's it is very, very challenging. Because um, you sometimes are not even aware of things you unconsciously do or subconsciously mm-hmm. do uh, to be less inviting to people from uh, from either a certain gender, certain beliefs, and uh, whatever you mm-hmm. you, you, you talk about, and. Um, and that's why uh, the topic, I guess, gets so hard. But still, we <laughs> see in our industry that this is discussed a lot. I mean, just just recently, uh, or pretty much right now, there's again discussions about uh, you know bad behavior in certain companies, and and mm-hmm. uh, I, I just wonder what we can do as an industry in general um, to uh, overcome this. And that's why uh, you know I I sometimes bring these topics up in <laughs> in conversations. Yeah, no, I think it's very important to talk about it. I think we should all, yeah. So. What we try is to also, for example, we don't have a requirement that you need to have a university degree or yeah. anything. You can just apply and we just judge you based on your talents and on your character. Yeah. That is what we judge you on. If you will, like, if you are a nice person, that it's, if you're easy to work with, if you show respect to other people and if you have good skills, yeah. this is what it takes to be in our team and the rest is, doesn't matter. And yeah, we often like participate with our studio in activities like, um, what's it called? Uh, Informatik Tage. So mm-hmm. the day where you look into technical jobs and so on. And then we, when we have uh, also girls that come by. So we have a lot of kids that come by, girls, boys, and we show them what we do and what different roles we have. And we tell them they can have each of the roles and. Yeah, we just try to show them that it's absolutely possible to go into a technical field. Whenever I talk to somebody who asks me, yeah, can you actually do programming in, like, I sometimes go to, like, events and then people always ask if I'm the artist. (laughs) And so then I always educate them. 
about no, you know, I'm not the artist and I actually can do programming and so on. And what also like, When I reach out, for example, to Twitch streamers and YouTubers and so on, they usually call me dude or they sometimes <laughs> call me, hey, dude, thanks. And then, like, no, I'm not a dude. <laughs> so always when that happens, I need to, I feel like I, I want to clarify that. Yeah. No, you know, game developers are also women and it's cool that they are. So please don't call me dude. So. Yeah, and I think that those are the <laughs> moments that are important to jump in and say, hey, listen, you know, this is, uh, right. you know, don't take things for, for granted. Don't say that programmers are always guys or something, you know, even though there might be uh, a, a little bit of a misbalance um, mm -hmm. in the industry. I think it's very important that uh, we do that. I think our studio is currently like 30 or 40% female, which I mm -hmm. also really... Um, enjoy it i think it gives a bit of a of a good balance in the team yeah i feel that it's, it just feels like a very balanced it's team. the same way i feel about it i would like you said before i uh i would always look at the skills first and what can that person contribute to the mm -hmm. team um but obviously diverse teams uh, from mm -hmm. a gender point of view but also from a cultural background point of view they usually achieve better results uh yes. and uh, i really enjoy working with diverse teams so i would always mm -hmm. hire with that in mind Uh, and mm -hmm. try to to balance it out so that people complement each other. I think that's very important, in, especially in game development or in any creative field. I agree. Yeah, this is totally a point you can consider, like team dynamics and what kind of more value and more insight from another culture so you can bring into your yeah. team. I agree. So even though we could go on like for hours, you know, talking about all the exciting stuff you do in the Swiss games industry and also, of course, in your, in your studio, uh, I would like to take the chance, uh, Philo, and thank you very much uh, for your time and doing this with us. Uh, there's so many um, good pieces of advice for indie developers in there. And uh, I really hope that um, our audience enjoys listening to that episode as much as I uh, did uh, or I had recording it with you. Um, so again, thank you very much. A very important um, part of the industry. Um, Uh, it was very exciting and uh, hopefully at some point we can do a follow-up uh, to this when your game gets closer to the <laughs> Kickstarter release. When I tell you how everybody, how everybody burned us because we promised them something and they did expect something else. Yeah, and then we have the third episode when you tell everybody like how you still succeeded you know, after they burned you. So. <laughs> I'm very Let's positive. Let's hope so. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to a DevCom podcast produced by Sven Fossing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.